Uh, you know, I'm a bad dad. It's uh, <laughs> a way to start a sermon, right? Last Sunday night after uh, we went home to church and had time together, we got out the old video movies, fa- family videos, watched a, some of them, and, and I'm telling you, we, I don't know why we did this. We actually videotaped one of our Christmases when the boys were little. I just set the camera, let it run, and we did our Christmas thing. And I've never watched that one before. I don't remember how the boys were. Clay was maybe two or three. He got his first guitar. He was so excited. And we were like, no, you can't get out of the box yet. We got more presents to open. And he's like, kept looking at the guitar, like, just let me go at it, you know. And he's just like, no, 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 just, you know, just keep it in the box. We got, we got an order for how we do Christmas. So open your present, open your present, throw the trash away, open your present. And then when we're done, then you can bust open the box. It's like, that was just goofy of me. I don't know why we did that. Just, you know, God gives you something. Go after it. Cut loose, you know. And, and here's a dad. We give him something. We're like, no, don't get it out of the box. And then fast forward some videos. And that last song, Blessed Be the Name. He also got a drum set maybe when he was four. I don't know. And he would just cut loose on the drums. And we got rid of them. They're too loud. Uh, <laughs> but the, the drums, not the boys. Um, but I look back at those videos. And it's like it was so fun to watch. And just the joint expression of children when God gives them something. Church, just think about this. What's God given you lately? How has he blessed you? What's been your response to his blessings? Has it been joyful? Or do you sometimes sit there and think, he's not giving me much. I open up, it's an empty box, you know? Or, or it's like, there it is, but he's saying, don't, don't open it yet. You took the wrapping off, but don't touch it yet. Let me tell you something. God wants to bless you. God wants to just give you and give you and give you. He's a very generous God. He's a very loving God. And even in the midst of pain, he wants to give you peace. He wants to give you strength. I just pray today as we dig into his word that he gives you insight, that he gives you hope, and then he gives you a new sense of how to live for him. Because we're talking about it's good for us to know what we believe and why we believe it, but it doesn't matter if we don't live it. So I encourage you as we go into God's word today, uh, just to, just praise God just, just gives to you, and you receive it, and you just go use it, go live it out. Because we come here to worship God with song and prayer and giving, We come to worship God by drawing near to him. And we want to know more about the God we worship and his son, Jesus Christ, and his Holy Spirit and how how that works. And we have a God who loves us so much that he emptied himself and he became flesh. That's just crazy to think about. That he would leave the throne room of heaven and he would step down into what was what I guess it was once we called a garden of perfection. But now this world is far from that messed up, sin-stricken. He came to pay a price we couldn't pay to redeem us from death. And it's just an amazing thing. And so I want you, if you would, grab your Bibles. We're going to do a lot of turning in the Bible today. If you need one, raise your hand. We're going to a book called Hebrews. Hebrews is in the New Testament. Towards the back. And as you're turning to Hebrews... There'll be some scriptures I'm going to say, turn to, and there's others and we're just going to put up on the screen. This is one I'd like you to turn with me too, if possible. Hebrews chapter 2, halfway through the New Testament. You get to Hebrews chapter 2, we're going to look at verse, starting in verse 10. Let me begin with verse 10. God, for whom and through whom everything was made. <laughs> you just got to go this slow with this, okay? For God... For whom and through whom everything 
was made, chose to bring many children into glory. It was only right that he should make Jesus, through his suffering, a perfect leader, fit to bring them into their salvation. Verse 11. So now Jesus and the ones he makes holy have the same father. That's why Jesus is not ashamed to call them his brothers and sisters. Skip down to verse 14 with me. Because God's children are human beings made of flesh and blood, the Son, Jesus Christ, also became flesh and blood. For only as human beings could he die, and only by dying could he break the power of the devil who had the power of death. Only in this way could he set free all who have lived their lives as slaves to the fear of dying. Only in this way. This is the only way we could be free of sin. Come up with whatever idea you can. Look at any religion you want. How can we be free of sin? How can we get to heaven? How can we defeat death and, and all this junk that goes on around? How, how? And you know, we can come up with all the only in this way. Through whom? Jesus Christ. Boy, if that's at the crux of what we believe, we probably should know who Jesus Christ is. We've talked about who God is, right? We talked about the Bible. So looking at God, looking at the Bible, let's go to the next one, if we want to say in line of importance, that'd be Jesus Christ. See, if we were to ask somebody today at school, work, home, a store, matter of fact, if we do this right now, I'd say look at the person next to you and ask, who's Jesus? Because we are here at church, you would all give me the Sunday school answer. It's God's son. Right? You would, you'd be great with that, okay? But here's the thing. You ask anybody outside the church, who is Jesus? You'll probably, for every person you ask, get a different opinion. What does Jesus do? Why did he come? What's, what was he like? Who is Jesus? What would they answer? A Sunday school teacher asked her class, you know, tell me about Jesus. What was, what was the name of the mother of Jesus? Well, child answered, well, Mary. The teacher said, well, that's great. What about the husband's name? Another child said, Verge. Confused, the teacher looked at it and said, Verge, where did, where did you get that? The child replied, you know, they're always talking about the Verge and Mary. <laughs> Where's Tyrion at? I need you up on the drums for that one. <laughs> right? It'll help me out. That was a very innocent answer. This is a true story, by the way. Okay, it wasn't just a joke. It was a true story because here you've got little kids who are learning about Jesus, about who he was, who he came from, all those kind of things. And we get all these crazy answers, right? A very innocent answer from a little child. But yet today as adults, some of those answers aren't so innocent. What if I start singing, and I'm not going to, but what if I start singing the song, Jesus Loves Me? We all, well, I'm going to say most of us know that song. Jesus loves me, this I know, right? Great song. But what if you don't know who Jesus is? Jesus loves me. Great, who's Jesus? Song doesn't mean anything if you don't know who he is, right? The words that we read in the Bible don't mean anything unless we know who Jesus is. It seems today if you're going to talk to somebody about Jesus in a loving way, I want to tell you about Jesus. I want to tell you about Jesus who who loves me. and, And if I were to... You know, go to some places, do that. Somebody would probably get mad at me. Oh, don't push your religion on me. Who knows? A protest might start out, right? Just because I love Jesus. But if I were to go on the street, somebody did something else to me. Maybe I got mad and I just yelled the name of Jesus in a cursing way. Nobody would turn their head. 
there's no protest about that. See, I, I could say a bad word on a court and nobody would say anything, but if I yelled the name of Jesus on a court, I might get a technical foul. You know? why, why is that? Why is the name of Jesus so controversial and yet so incredible, so loving? Do we really know who Jesus is? Because it is so important to understand this. This is what I'm going to do. We're not going to, I'm not going to have you go in the Bible. Because I'm going, to, I'm going to do this really quick, okay? But I'm going to take you through some Bible passages. Because people in the Bible were confused about Jesus too. So I just want you to understand, if you have heard other people that seem a little confused, who is Jesus, we've got different beliefs about Jesus, it didn't start yesterday, okay? Let's rewind a couple thousand years. Back in the book of John, chapter 8, verse 48. It says this, the people retorted, You Samaritan devil. They're talking to Jesus, by the way. Okay. Didn't we say all along that you were possessed by a demon? Jesus said, No, I have no demon in me. I honor my Father. You dishonor me. And, and though I have no wish to glorify myself, God's going to glorify me. He's the true judge. I tell you the truth. Anyone who obeys my teachings will never die. The people said, Oh, now we know you're possessed by a demon. See, some people thought Jesus was demon-possessed. It's hard to believe, right? But they did. Mark chapter 3, verse 20. In Mark chapter 3, verse 20, read this. At one time, Jesus entered a house. The crowds began to gather again. Soon he and his disciples, they couldn't even find time to eat. When his family heard what was happening, they tried to take him away. They said this, he's out of his mind. Wait, this is his family. Mom, brothers, they all come in and like, he's a little, okay, let's take him out. So we got some people over here who said, Jesus is demon-possessed. You got another group of people over here, actually close family, said, he's out of his mind. He's a little crazy, right? Let me take you to another passage. Matthew chapter 13, starting in verse 54, it says this. He returned to Nazareth, his hometown. Jesus comes home, homecoming. When he taught there in the synagogue, everyone was amazed and said, where does he get his wisdom and the power to do miracles? Then they scoffed. He's just the carpenter's son. We know Mary, his mother, and his brothers, James, Joseph, Simon, Judas. All his sisters live right here among us. Where did he learn all these things? And they were deeply offended, and they refused to believe him. Some people think he's demon-possessed. Some people think he's crazy. Some people are just flat-out offended by Jesus. I don't even want to listen to him. He's offensive. Oh, we're not done yet. There's still more opinion floating out there. Matthew chapter 16, just a few pages over. Matthew chapter 16, verse 13, it says this. When Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do you say the Son of Man is? So he's got all this opinion about who Jesus is. And then he gets to his disciples and say, you know what? I've heard a lot of opinions. Some people think I'm demon-possessed. Some people think I'm crazy. Some people think I'm offensive. Who do you think? I mean, what do you hear about me? What does his disciples say? Listen to what they say. Well, they replied, some say you're John the Baptist. Some say Elijah. Others say Jeremiah or one of the prophets. <laughs> some people think he's a prophet, an, an old prophet. Maybe come back to life. Matthew chapter 16, verse 16 then, he goes on to say this. And he looks at his disciples and he goes, who do you say I am? Like you imagine this, he's hearing opinion after opinion after opinion after opinion. Then he goes to Jesus and goes, who do you say I am? Listen to what their answer is. Simon Peter answers, you're the Messiah. 
You're the son of the living God. And Jesus replied, Simon, son of John, blessed are you because my Father in heaven has revealed this to you. You didn't learn this from any human being. Incredible. Matthew chapter 28. Because here now we've, we've got all these varying opinions and he gets to his disciples and Peter comes out and right says, well, Jesus, we know you are. You're the son of the living God. Finally, somebody's got it right. Somebody's got the answer. But wait a second. Matthew 28, verses 16 and 17, it says this. Then the 11 disciples, who were the ones that just said, you're the son of the living God, right? Then the 11 disciples left for Galilee. They went to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go. When they saw Jesus, this is after the resurrection, they see Jesus. They begin to worship him, but some of them doubted. Wait a minute. Okay, wait a second. Demon-possessed, crazy, offensive, prophet, son of living God. I don't know about this. Do you see all the varying opinion? Especially the disciples who saw all these opinions, and they said, you're the son of the living God. They saw him die. They saw him come back to life. And yet they still doubted. Is it any wonder that we today sometimes have a confusion about Jesus when there was already a confusion about Jesus 2,000 years ago? Let me tell you where there was no confusion. In the book of Mark, chapter 1, verse 21, it says this. Jesus and his companions went to the time of Capernaum. When a Sabbath day came, he went into the synagogue and began to preach. Imagine the church, okay? Jesus comes up. He's going to step up the front, pull up a scroll, maybe to read, or maybe he's just going to use no scroll because he was that good. Okay. And it says, The people were amazed at his teaching, for he taught with real authority quite unlike the teachers of the religious laws. And suddenly a man in the synagogue who was possessed by an evil spirit. So somebody sitting out in, the, out in the synagogue who was there listening, possessed by an evil spirit, says he stepped up, he began shouting, why are you interfering with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are. Oh, here it comes. Now somebody's claiming to know who Jesus I know who you are, the Holy One of God. Boom. Nailed it. Dropped the mic, right? (laughs) The demon-possessed man was the one of all these people who got it right. The Holy One of God. Give me another passage. Mark chapter 3, verse 11. Because this happened quite often, actually. Mark chapter 3, verse 11, we read this. Jesus had healed many people that day, so all the sick people usually pushed forward to touch him. And whenever they... Whenever those possessed by evil spirits caught sight of him, the spirits would throw themselves to the ground in front of him, shrieking, You are the Son of God. We might be a little fuzzy on who Jesus is. Sometimes we look at Jesus and we might say, Was he demon possessed? He had a lot of power. Maybe he was a little crazy. Look at some of the things he said and did. Or, or you know what? Some of the things are sort of offensive to me. He was sort of like the prophets. But you know what? I think he's the son of God. I think he is. I'm I'm sort of doubting. And then the demons, our enemy, the ones who oppose God, step up and say, he's the holy one of God. Remember James? We read uh, James, uh, I think it was 2.19. You believe that there's one God? Good. Even the demons believe that. And they shudder. I'm going to tell you something. It's not fuzzy at all to the demons who Jesus Christ is. They know 
He is the Holy One of God. The question is for us who are on this earth right now walking this planet, who have truth before us, who do you say Jesus Christ is? What do you believe about Jesus Christ? Because what you believe about him will direct every step you take. We must know without a doubt, we must believe fully that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. Again, it would take volumes of books and days of speaking and hundreds of messages to talk about who Jesus Christ is. So this is what I want to do this morning. I want to just give you four simple things about who Jesus Christ is. Take these four simple things. Let that be your foundation. And then from there, learn more. But go with these first. Here's here's the first one. Jesus is God. Open up your Bibles to John chapter 1. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. It's in the New Testament, the fourth book. John chapter 1. The author of John is John, okay? And he said this. This is great, okay? We need to understand where he's coming from. John chapter 1, starting in verse 10. He said this, he being Jesus Christ came into the very world he created, but the world didn't recognize him. He came to his own people. They rejected him. But to all who believed him and accepted him, he gave right to become the children of God. Now remember, I told you as Christians, that's like our spiritual birth certificate, right? Look at verse 14. The word became human, made his home among us. He was full of unfailing love and faithfulness. We've seen his glory and the glory of of the Father's one and only Son. He came into the world. He created. Jesus comes into the world. He created. We go back to Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, who created the heavens and the earth? God. We have to understand that Jesus is God. But God says, I'm coming to earth, but I'm going to come in the flesh. So God comes to earth in the flesh. Verse 14. He became human, made his home among us. He, he dwelt here. He pitched his tent, as the translation would read. Paul, who's an apostle, who understand this, before ever meeting Jesus, he was the enemy of Christians. He was a murderer. He was a persecutor of those who followed Jesus Christ. He would put them in prison. He would beat them. In his book, one of his books that he wrote, one of his letters he wrote, to Colossians, turn to Colossians, go past Acts and Romans and First and Second Corinthians, a bunch of small books. You get to the book of Colossians, and in Colossians chapter one, I want to start reading this in verse fifteen. Christ, the visible image of the invisible God. Christ, the visible image of the invisible God. That's how it starts off verse 15. Paul wants to understand this. You want to know who Jesus Christ is? Jesus Christ is the visible image of an invisible God. He existed before anything created and is supreme over all creation. For through him, God created everything in the heavenly realms and on earth. He made the things we can see, the things we can't see, such as thrones, kingdoms, rulers, authorities in the unseen world. Everything was created through him and for him. He existed before anything else. He holds all creation together. Christ is also the head of the church, which is his body. He is the beginning, supreme over all who rise over the dead. So he is first in everything. Paul's just going at it. He's like, I want you to know who Jesus is. He is mighty. He is supreme. Look at verse 19. 
For God, in all of his fullness, was pleased to what? To live in Christ. And through him, God reconciled everything to himself. He made peace with everything in God on earth by means of Christ's blood on the cross. Why is it so important that I'm, I'm trying to drive home this point about that Jesus is God? Because a lot of people say today, Jesus was just a man. He was just a prophet. Let me tell you something. If Jesus is just a prophet, just a man, just a great teacher, then he is not our Lord. No way can man be Lord. But Jesus is God. It's, under, it's so important for us to understand this truth. So many false religions, so many false teachings. You can get caught up on somebody's blog, somebody's post, somebody's social media, putting it out there, talking about, oh, this is what we believe. And it sounds very biblical. But they can be very far off if you find out that they really don't believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. There's a lot of religions out there that look really close. You could probably step into one of their churches and they could stand up there and preach and you walk out and say, that was really cool. It's like, do you know they don't believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God? Really? I would have never known that because they disguise it well. It's important for us to know that Jesus is God. It's truly difficult to grasp, but according to Scripture, which we've already declared to be true, this is what we know. We trust what we know. God became flesh. Jesus is God. But here's, this leads us to our second thing you need to know about Jesus, okay? Why did he become flesh? Why is God, okay, why did he become flesh as Jesus? Here's the second thing you need to know. Jesus came here because he came to save sinners. Jesus died to save us. Jesus died to save us. When you think about this, and, and unfortunately, you know, Frank and Callie, you've experienced it this past week. Death in the family. People die from all kinds of causes, sickness, cancer, accidents, home improvement situation gone bad. Maybe is some something incredibly was fun, recreational, gone bad. People die for many reasons. Okay? Jesus died on a Roman cross, an ancient form of capital punishment. You sit there and think, why would the God of this universe allow himself to die such an unusual and cruel death? So if you're there in Colossians, look back at verse 19 and 20. For God in all of his fullness was pleased to live in Christ, which we just read. Through him, God reconciled everything to himself. He made peace with everything in heaven and on earth by means of Christ's blood on the cross. Listen, we need to know that Jesus, God in the flesh, he came with a mission. In Luke 19:10, it says, Jesus came to seek and save those who are lost. He had purpose. He knew that we would be far from God. He knew that we'd be trying to live lives on our own. And he's like, you know what? You're going in the wrong direction. I want to save you from that. He wanted to, what we read here, reconcile sinners with God. What does that mean? He wants to restore a relationship. See, when, whenever we sin, whenever we make a mistake, whenever we mess up, we create like a barrier between us and God. We now have hindrance towards that relationship. When we lie, when we gossip, when we hurt people, God's like, it's not good. And there's a wall there, so to say. And how do I get to that relationship? If you're married in this room or if you have a relationship with a great friend, you know that if you say something or do something wrong in that relationship, all of a sudden your relationship is busted apart. How do you restore that? How do you reconcile that? It's hard, isn't it? 
I'm going to say this, to reconcile our relationship with God, to restore things with God, is impossible. How do I get things right with God? Well, can't do good work, can't make any kind of payment. Somebody has to pay a price. So God says, I will come in the flesh. I will die to save sinners. My blood, untainted by sin, will be the sacrifice, will be the perfect sacrifice. So if you were to read through the Old Testament times, all these uh, maybe passages about sacrificing lambs and all these uh, sacrifices in a tabernacle, they would take the lamb and they'd take the blood and they would shed it, and so the sacrifice for the sins of the people. Oh, that was great through Old Testament. But then Jesus came as proclaimed as the Lamb of God, the one ultimate sacrifice. Perfect. Hebrews. You're in Colossians. Just go back just a few books to Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 10. Hebrews chapter 10. I'm going to read a few verses. uh, Verses 1 through 4. Hebrews chapter 10, verses 1 through 4. The old system under the law of Moses was only a shadow, a dim preview of the good things to come. Not the good things themselves, okay? The sacrifices under that system were repeated again and again, year after year. But they were never able to provide perfect cleansing. Let me stop. So, oh, that sacrificial lamb stuff that I was telling you about, okay, did you read that? Sacrifices under that system were repeated again and again, year after year. But did you, that last part, let me read this again. But they were never able to provide perfect cleansing. Well, that's awesome. They sacrificed those lambs, but they didn't provide that perfect cleansing that we need. They never fully restored that relationship with God. If they could have provided perfect cleansing, the sacrifices would have stopped for the worshipers, would have been purified once for all time. Their feelings of guilt would have disappeared, but instead those sacrifices actually reminded them of their sins year after year. Listen to this next verse. For it's not possible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Did you hear that? We're going to sacrifice this lamb. It's going to take away my sins. It doesn't work. It doesn't work. Look at verse 14. Fast forward to verse 14. For by that one offering, he forever made perfect those who were being made holy. What offering? What sacrifice? Jesus Christ. His dying on the cross. His shedding of his blood. That's the ultimate sacrifice. Verse 15. The Holy Spirit also testifies that this is so. For he says... This is the new covenant I will make with my people on that day, says the Lord. I will put my laws in their hearts. I will write them on their minds. Then he says, I'll never again remember their sins and lawless deeds. Verse 18. And when sins have been forgiven, there's no need to offer any more sacrifices. When Christ died on that cross, that was the last sacrifice that ever had to be made. And he did that for us. 1 Peter 3.18 says this. Christ suffered for our sins once for all. He never sinned, but he died for sinners to bring you safely home to God. He suffered physical death, but he was raised to life in the Spirit. Jesus died for us to restore relationship with God. Chuck Swindoll said this, If our greatest need had been information, God would have sent us an educator. If our greatest need had been technology, God would have sent us a scientist. If our greatest need would have been money, God would have sent an economist. If our greatest need had been pleasure, God would have sent an entertainer. But our greatest need was forgiveness. So God sent a Savior. Which leads us to the third thing about Jesus. Because we know he died, right? This is very important for us to understand. 
he came back to life. Look at the person next to you. Give him a high five. Okay, if you're not sure what a high five is, here's what we do, okay? Because this is the, if you're at a ball, that was really pathetic, church, okay? If you're at a ball game, I know we were getting really serious, and some of you are getting a little sleepy, it's a little warm in here, or you're getting really into it, really in depth, right? Okay, you weren't sleepy, you're just focused. Okay, so here's the deal. You give somebody a high five at a ball game, somebody scores, somebody does something, you're like, that was so sweet, cool. No, it ain't happening. You're like, yeah! I mean, you're strangers, you're slapping strangers with your palm, their palm, making a loud clap because something awesome just happened, okay? Let me repeat this to you, okay? Jesus came back from the dead. Oh, now look at the person. Give him a high five. Woo! Yeah. Yeah. That's awesome. Okay. There we go. Palm Sunday early. Sweet. Okay, good. All right. Listen, to believe that a man came back from the dead is like what? Unnatural, right? Nobody comes back from the dead. Can I remind you something? Our God is what? Supernatural. Okay? Our God is supernatural. Listen, if you want to disprove Christianity, here's what you do. Take away the resurrection of Jesus Christ. You want to take away Christianity? You want to kill Christianity? You want to remove Christianity from this planet? Then prove that Jesus Christ never came back from the dead. Prove it. I mean, after all, Christianity is the only faith that believes that their God came back from the dead. Okay, all their founders of religions, all the religions, they're all dead. They're still dead. Mohammed, Buddha, Joseph Smith, they're all dead. Nobody's been popping out of their graves, okay? They're dead, still dead. Jesus Christ, alive. Okay? Only one, Jesus Christ, alive. Paul said this, 1 Corinthians 15, 14 to 22, said, If Christ had not been raised, listen to this, okay? If Christ is still dead, our preaching is useless. Your faith is useless. And we apostles would all be lying about God. For we said that God raised Christ from the grave. But that can't be true if there's no resurrection of the dead. And if there's no resurrection of the dead, then Christ has not been raised. And if Christ hasn't been raised, then your faith is useless. And you're still guilty of your sins. And in that case, all who've died believing in Christ are lost. And if our hope is in Christ is only for this life, we are more pitied than anybody else in the world. Paul says, listen, no resurrection. What are we doing here? Let's go home. Let's go do whatever we want to do with our lives. If the resurrection isn't true, then we are the most misguided, foolish people on this planet. But, I love this, verse 20. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. Oh, yeah. He would, that's not in there, but he would have. He would have written, oh, yeah. He is the first of a great harvest of all who have died. So you see, just as death came into the world through a man, now the resurrection from the dead has begun through another man. Just as everyone dies because all belong to Adam, everyone who belongs to Christ is given new life. Church, Jesus is God. Jesus died to save us. Jesus is alive. Which brings my fourth foundational point. And that is this. Jesus is coming back for us. He didn't just rise from the dead and ascend into heaven. He's coming back. And if you're keeping track, okay, we know it could be any time. We don't know when it's going to be. Acts 1, 9 to 11 says, After saying this, he's taken up into a cloud while they were watching. And they could no longer see him. They strained to see him rising into heaven. And two white-robed men suddenly stood among them. And he said to his disciples, Men of Galilee, why are you standing here looking up into heaven? Jesus 
who has been taken from you into heaven, someday he's going to come back from heaven the same way you saw him go. Those disciples are standing there. They're thinking, there goes Jesus. Can you just imagine this? And you're just standing around looking. It's like, he's gone. And then these two white-robed men are standing next to you going, what are you doing? What are you standing around here for? He's, he's coming back. He's coming back. Oh, just you wait and see. We must know who Jesus is. Son of God, Messiah, wonderful counselor, mighty God, Prince of Peace, Emmanuel, right? That's why we celebrate Christmas, because we know he was born. And he became flesh and lived among us. In human form to die for us, to save us. And he rose from the dead. And we believe that. We celebrate Easter. We look forward to that. We're going to be celebrating Easter. Not in, not in, uh, we're going to be celebrating Easter in a new building, okay? And that's going to be fun. We celebrate Jesus by how we live right now, knowing that he's coming back. If you believe God's the only God, the one true God, and you believe that the Bible is true, I told you last two weeks, and we've got to respond in how we believe. And in the same way, if you believe Jesus is God, Jesus died to save you, and Jesus rose from the dead, and Jesus is coming back, then how are we living that out? Let me give you some encouragement how to do this. First of all, respond by worship. Respond by worship. How do those who met Jesus for the first time approach him? New Testament, reading through Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, the first four books of the New Testament, the gospel stories, found about 22 plus different places. When somebody came to Jesus for the first time, they were on their knees. And they were worshiping. Basically, what they were saying is, when you go to go to your knees, it's like you go before a king, when you hit your knees, you're basically saying this. You are higher than me. I'm lowering myself to you. You are above me. When these people met Jesus for the first time, they didn't come in like, hey, Jesus, my best friend, bud, dude, whatever, okay? No, there was a lot of respect for Jesus. There was a, you're Jesus, I'm not. I'm hitting my knees, and I want to worship you. Now, over 10 years ago, I shared this a while back. My, my cousin Dennis um, he had been driven off the road by a drunk driver and was instantly killed. And it was, it was a tragic thing. And I went to the funeral with my cousin. And, and I'll never forget some of the testimonies that were shared about Dennis's life. And I knew Dennis from a distance. He was a lot older than me as a cousin. But um, our two families hung out because all of us kids were sort of like same ages. There was like six of us kids in each family, and we were all the same ages. And so we did hang out a lot with each other. And, and one thing I didn't know about Dennis was that he'd wake up every morning and he would just worship Jesus. He would sing. It didn't matter whose house he was at, if he was visiting an aunt and uncle or somebody else's place. They would hear him singing in the shower. They'd hear him singing praise songs. And one gentleman who got up to share at the funeral said this. He goes, that morning when we were out working on the trucks because he drove truck, um, he was loading his truck, and he was singing praises to the Lord. And, and I was going to make fun of him, because obviously it's not a popular thing to sing about Jesus when you're loading your truck up to head out, okay? He goes, but I didn't make fun of him that morning. And I'm, he said this, I'm so glad that I didn't make fun of him, because that was the last time I saw Dennis. And how would I have remembered him? Me making fun of him. But instead, how do I remember him? He was always singing about his Jesus. He was always worshiping his Jesus. I would encourage you, if you truly believe in Jesus Christ, worship him. 
When we sing songs, we sing them to Jesus. We don't sing them to the, the band, the worship team. We don't sing them to the people sitting next to us. We sing them to Jesus. He loves it when you sing to him. He loves it when you worship him, whether it's here, whether it's home, it's in your vehicle. Respond with living it out. I want to encourage you to, to live it out. There's people who, if you go back um, to the biblical times, when they, once they understood who Jesus was, they lived different. They understood what it would be like to, under difficult conditions to believe the way they had to believe and live it out. In John chapter 20, 31, it says that by believing, you may have life. John said, as he's wrapping up his book, he goes, but by, but by believing, you may have life. Well, wait a minute. Believing is the means, not the end, is what you're saying, John? Yes. See, we don't have these written words for us just to believe. See, that's not the end. Because sometimes that's what we make it out to be. Hey, we want you to believe. You know, no, 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 no. It's by believing you start living for Christ. Believing isn't the end. Believing is the means to the end, which is living. We want you to believe in God's word so that you can live according to God's word. During this time, after Jesus was resurrected, soon after that, a lot of persecution came to the disciples and everybody who believed in Jesus and lived for Jesus. Caesar hated Christians. He would kill Christians, and according to Caesar and his, his followers, allegiance belonged to Caesar. So if Caesar were to come in here with his troops, he would say this, repeat after me, Caesar is Lord, and if you cannot say that, I will put you to death, basically. So as a Christian, you had a choice. Either you could say Caesar is Lord or Jesus is Lord. If you chose to say Jesus is Lord, you were put to death. And it, it wasn't like, oh, we're just going to laugh at you. Ha <laughs> ha, you believe in Jesus? Well, I'm going to hope a sign and protest and just think you're just a goofy person. Okay, no. Caesar's like, you know what? You're going to be a part of my party tonight at my house. You're, matter of fact, you're going to be my garden torch. Because he took Christians, impaled them on a stick, lit them on fire in his gardens to light up his gardens at his parties. That's what happened to Christians. If you believed, you lived it out. And if you truly lived it out, that was possibly what could happen. So the Christians at that time said, no, Caesar's not Lord. Jesus is Lord. See, they acted on what they believed. For John and these first believers, believing led to living. And believing wasn't the goal. Living was the goal. You know, and I love watching NCAA basketball. Okay? There's a lot of sports I enjoy watching, but I love watching NCAA basketball because the fans go crazy. The fans go nuts. Um, you know, I used to say I liked watching the ACC because, like, Duke and North Carolina, two big rivals. Their fans were all out. But now it's almost any Division I college team. Their fans get crazy. They paint their faces. They put on wigs. They wear their colors. And they stand the whole game. And they're, right? And they jump the whole time, right? Okay, church, we're going to do it on three. No, I'm just kidding. Okay. Jeez, relax. Okay, but here's the thing. They get all pumped and excited, and they're fired up, and they're jumping, right? Let me ask you this. If I were to walk into that stadium, and you got all those fans jumping, and I go, I walked up to them and go, hey, who are you cheering for? <laughs> what do you think they're going to say? They are going to laugh, and they're going to make fun of me because it is so obvious who they're cheering for. You don't have to ask. You walk into a stadium, you see the way they're dressed, you see the way they're cheering, you see everything about them. It's like, it is so obvious who they're cheering for. That's what I love about those fans. 
You don't have to ask who they represent. Their allegiance shows it all right there, how they're dressed, how they're acting, right? Patrick Morley says this, of what earthly value is Christianity if it leaves no indelible mark on one's lifestyle? Of what earthly value is Christianity if it leaves no indelible mark on one's lifestyle? The church, how are we living? Do people look at you and say, oh, I can tell you're a Christian. I, I can see by the way you live that you're a Christian. Your allegiance just screams it. Peter said, what? He said in 1 Peter 3, some people want to harm you if you're eager to do good, but even if you suffered for doing what's right, God's going to reward you for it. Don't be afraid. Don't worry. Listen, instead, you must worship Jesus Christ as the Lord of your life, which I just encourage us to do, okay? The Lord of your life, not the Lord of your Sunday. And if you are asked about your Christian hope, always be ready to explain it. Always be ready to explain it. If somebody asks you about your faith, be ready to explain it. Now, why are they going to ask you? Because you're living it out, not because you're walking. Hey, you know what I believe? You know what I believe? No, they're going to see how you're living because your belief drives how you live. And because you're living for Jesus Christ, people are going to look at you and say, why are you so loving? Why are you so giving? Why did you do this for me? Why did you donate clothes to them? Why did you go over and give of your hours to help build a church? Why are you helping this, this cause or that cause? Be ready to explain it, Peter said. Because when you're living out your faith, people notice you're different than they ask you. Why are you that way? Then you can share your belief. See, the way we live comes as a result of the way we believe. I always told you this. It's like show and tell, right? You show up at school with your favorite thing to show everybody. You show it to them first, right? You're like, oh, look at that, look at that. And then you tell them about it. That's the Christian faith. We don't have to tell people about Jesus. We're going to show them Jesus. And then when they ask, we'll tell them about Jesus. I want to encourage you to know who Jesus Christ is. Because he will change your world. And once you start living for him, the world will be changed. Amen? Worship team, would you come forward? I want to, while you're coming forward, I want to read something to, to you. It's called One Solitary Life by James Hefley. I want to read what he, uh, to you what he wrote. He said this about Jesus. Here is a man, now listen very carefully. Here is a man who was born in an obscure village, child of a peasant woman. He worked in the carpenter's shop until he was 30. And then for three years, he was an interim preacher. He never wrote a book, never held an office, never owned a home, never had a family. He never went to college. Never put his foot inside a big city. Never traveled 200 miles from the place he was born. He never did one of the things that usually accompany greatness. He had no credentials for himself. He had nothing to do with the world except the naked power of his divine manhood. And while still a young man, the tide of popular opinion turned against him. He was turned over to his enemies. Went through the mockery of a trial. Nailed to a cross between two thieves. His executioners gambled for the only piece of property he had on earth while he was dying, which was his coat. And when he was dead, he was taken down. He was laid in a borrowed grave through the pity of a friend. Such was his human life. And he rises from the dead. Nineteen centuries have come and gone, and today he is the centerpiece 
of the human race, the leader of the column of progress. I'm within the mark when I say that all the armies that ever marched, all the kings that ever reigned, put together, have not affected the life of man upon this earth as powerfully as one solitary life, Jesus Christ. Church, who is this Jesus? He is God. He died for us. He rose from the dead. He's coming back. He's my Lord. And I will live for him. Is he your Lord? Will you live for him? Would you please stand? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that we can come here and worship you today in song and prayer. And just seeing people and talking to them is a great way to enhance our time of worship with you. But God, let it not stop here. We learn every day, not just on Sunday, but every day more about you. Because what we believe matters. As John said, it's by believing that we are living. And God, as I learn all these things and I've come to believe these things about you, it changes how I live. God, I pray it's same for this church body that we are learning, that we are figuring out more about you, that you reveal yourself to us through your word. And as we learn, we believe because we can trust what we are reading here. And God, may that belief then change the way we live. May our allegiance to you be so obvious. People come to us and say, who is this Jesus or why are you acting this way? And you, we've heard you say things, but we've seen what you've done and what you're doing is crazy. You love people. You, you forgive people. And why would you do that? And God, when people ask us those questions, help us be bold and help us to be strong and say, it's because Jesus changed me. Would you like to know him? God, maybe there's somebody in this room right now that doesn't know Jesus personally. You've heard, they've heard about him but they've never confessed their sins. God, if there's somebody in here in this room this morning, now's the time for each of us to confess our sins to a holy God, to confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Jesus, thank you for coming to this planet to die for us, to live for us, to free us from sin. So we can have a new life with you. So we can have a new, that restored relationship with God. God, help us in this life to live for you. Worship you and live for you. We sing to you now, God, this song. In thy name we pray. Amen.